Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Tovey. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talkart. Welcome to Talkart. <laughs> How are you, Rob? <laughs> I'm I'm actually feeling very energetic. Are you? Would you yep. say you're feeling bubbly? I'm feeling quite bubbly, actually. Um, because today we're here with Ruinar. Yes. Um, and we're going to be meeting an incredible artist that both of us have respected for a long oh my time. God. Yeah, yeah, totally inspired. He's a global icon in many He is ways. a global icon. And uh, he's made work all over the world. And... Uh, what I love about him is there's a phrase that he's used before, which is um, he wants to tickle uh, the mind of the viewer. And there's something so ingenious about that. Yes. I, I love the joyfulness and the energy yes. that comes from this artist's work. Yes, yes, yes. I agree. Well, we're going to welcome to Talk Art, Vic, Vic Muniz. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. You're welcome, Vic. How are you doing? Uh, jet lag. Are you? When did you get in? A few hours ago from, oh, no. from Rio, yeah. Wow. What's that journey like? Um, boring, um, hellish, bad food, uh, but I'm very, very happy to be here. <laughs> We're happy to have you here. So you're here to coincide with uh, Freeze Week and also you, you're here to work with Ruinar and see what the stand looks like that you've produced. I'm primarily here to be talking to you guys. Oh, right. Uh, everything wow. else, uh, it's, uh, it's very nice too, yeah. I came to do another celebration with Ruinart. We've been doing this quite often this year in a lot of art fairs. It's, it's been good. Oh, great. So how long ago did you meet Ruinart and this, this collaboration started? <laughs> well, I don't remember when I met Ruinart for the first time because I probably had a lot of it. Uh, but I, <laughs> I, I was approached by uh, the CEO of Ruinart in one one event. I remember at the time I had uh, worked with another champagne, another brand of champagne. We're so he said, I'm not going to talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a very interesting project. I said, oh, I'm so, you know, bummed that you did this uh, with the other. Now we have to wait a, a couple of years before we do something together. And I said, well, if you had approached me then, because I, this is the champagne that I drink, you know. Right. Uh, and sure thing. Two years later, he contacted me, and it it was quite interesting to go through. It's it's different than just a, a brand coming to you and say, "Do you want to do something with the brand?" It was a complete package. You know, you, they bring you to the to Huinat, to to Champagne, to the region of Champagne. So they show you how it's done. They introduce you to the materials. Artists, they. You know, if, if I if somebody takes me to say a glass foundry, you know, mm. I come out of there with one hundred ideas of do th- doing things with glass. If somebody takes me to uh, 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 like a, a 
scientific Food. lab yeah, yeah. or a biogenetic labs. I've yeah. done that many times, and I I like to to I, I like to learn a lot. And this was the perfect way to do it because they took me to witnessed all the processes in winemaking. And I, I see, I I grew up poor in Brazil, in Sao Paulo, in the favela on the outskirts of Sao Paulo, just to, just just to have a chance to you know just be part of something like this. Mm. It's quite, quite interesting. And it obviously it became enormously inspiring to me. Mm. Do you have to pinch yourself sometime then when you're, when you're experiencing that from where you've come from? You know, I, I, if it's, a, it's a long, it'll be a long podcast if we talk about where do I come from and how do I get here to be talking to you. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know. I, I have the best job in the world. You know, I'm sorry <laughs> for you guys because <laughs> it's a it's a job where you can hire and fire yourself on a daily basis. Um, <laughs> right. You know, does no. You, I have no obligation. You have total freedom to do pretty much whatever you you become interested in. Yeah. So I I saw your booth today because I've been installing. I run a gallery um, in Margate, and um, we have a booth at the fair. And I was installing today, and I ran over to the Ruinar booth, and I got to see a preview of Vic's incredible new installation there. And they're this series of photographs, very closely linked to drawing, actually. And they um they kind of represent trees, roots, and there's lots of movement within them. But um I talking about your past and growing up, there's a story that I, I, I know about, which is your maternal grandmother really helped educate you because you struggled reading and writing as a child and therefore drawing for you was a way of communicating. And I actually, through your story, I've realised that I had a very similar experience as a child where I couldn't read and write very easily and it took me many years until I was about 10 years old. And it's only come back to me now and I wonder if that's also why I'm into art, which is kind of how you got into art. Can you talk a bit about your early drawing and... Um, alphabet and all that kind of well some people have uh, different approaches to deal or to to same symbolic exchanges normally when people ask me when did you start becoming an artist you know i don't remember i remember i was in a in a talk like this and the 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 painter who i'm not gonna say who it was it was julia schnabel actually he said uh i started painting at the age of five and was, i was like who didn't, you know? Everybody <laughs> paints. Yeah, Everyone in this so, room. Yeah. Uh, so basically, when do, does someone becomes an artist has to do more or less with when most of the people around these people stop being artists. By the time we were in preschool, we start acquiring symbolic um, information, you know, symbolic language like numbers. Uh, we expand our vocabulary. We start to write and read. And all of a sudden, that direct relationship that the child has with the visual world it starts being uh, mediated by a sort of a wall of symbols. You know, so normally this wall is very thick; it clouds. And some sometimes it, I think when you build this with a certain degree of transparency, you know, you are able to interact to sort of like retain a little bit of that uh, uh, that impression that a child, the way a child looks at the world. I never thought of becoming an artist because from if I tell my father I, I want to be an artist, he, I would have to explain to him what an artist does. You know, he, we didn't know any artists. In fact, uh, we didn't have any books at home. The only books that we had at home was a collection of uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica that my father won on a pool game. I remember when he arrived with a wheelbarrow with the books in it and kind of really, really pissed because the guy didn't have money to pay him. So he brought it. My grandmother never had one day at school. She, she, at that time, you know, she grew up in the countryside in, in Sao Paulo 
women didn't go to school. She, she was the one that had, was supposed to take care of the siblings. And, but she learned how to read and write just by looking really hard. And she was the, at the, her, her children's books. She was the most intelligent woman I've ever met in my entire life. And, uh, and when I, my first memory that I have, I'm in a grayish, greenish sofa in a, in a, in a, like a, a, it's like a little bit, a, 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 we call cortisos, it's like a, a urban slam in Sao Paulo. Both my parents worked and she, I stayed with her during the, uh, after, all my afternoons. And she had a, a system, we would cover the words and sort of show them, you know, like in, in the, I would say the words with her as if they were kind of an incantation. So, but she actually taught me from A to Z too. Uh, and we read those books all the time. When I started in, in uh, first grade, when I was in, uh, seven years old, I didn't do, do kindergarten. I, I, and I work with this now because I thought I missed a lot by not doing it. Uh, I was reading uh, already chapter books. But it took me three years to learn how to write a word on my own. And not to mention cursive words. I could only read certain fonts. So I, I'm a self-taught dyslexic person. I can, I can, uh, I could not produce because the phonosyllabic system had a completely different construction. So I, I did every time I took dictation, I would make little shorthand symbols that I was the only person who could read it. So uh, in school, I was like the the my my copy books looked like the Egyptian wing of the Metropolitan yeah, Museum, yeah. and I could I could you know like the 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 thing is. I started having trouble. The vocabulary of the symbols started expanding. I started having uh, trouble memorizing them. And all of a sudden, I started improving on them. And before I know, I became the kid that uh, makes caricatures of teachers and passes them around. The kid, everybody has a kid like this in the class, the kid who makes drawings, you know. And that became a little bit of my identity, you know. But when everybody stopped making drawings and stopped playing with clay, I sort of took the, the opposite Continue. direction and started doing that. Wow. Can you remember the first artworks you saw as a kid that influenced you? I, you know, that Encyclopedia Britannica was a, an edition from 1953. And I think it, it has an enormous influence on my work because every art that I've seen came from reproductions. And it tells, it, it, you can see that in my work today. It's really, it became really important. But it was an edition that you couldn't quite tell if they were really bad photographs or really good drawings, the illustrations. They were so badly impressed, badly pressed, yeah, that uh, the, 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 the printing was horrible. And uh, I think trying to guess between a good picture and uh, a bad picture and a, and a good illustration, you know, with, so you see like the Mona Lisa would be like had four colors in it. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I remember looking my entire childhood art through reproductions. And obviously you become, and then when I moved to the U.S. years later, start visiting museums and seeing the real, real art for the first time in my life. And yeah. then, uh, and that gap between being physically present, looking at art and then in the memory that the pictures, tiny little badly done pictures that I had in my mind, it was a huge space. And I still think after 30 something years that I've been working as an artist, I'm still trying to fill that gap somehow that uh, bridges like uh, the picture in your head mm. to a physical experience of something. And I've always really liked this idea. I've heard you speak before, but you, you mentioned this idea that um, 
even though you've made films, obviously, because you made Wasteland, which was Oscar nominated, and you've had films made about your work and stuff, you, you're actually still interested in the still object on the wall, like, you know, like a photograph or a painting on the wall, because within that experience, there's so much movement and interaction, you know, with, with the 2D um, object. And also, I guess you're constantly playing with, with the way that you're using photography. Well, if, if uh, there's something that happens when I was drawing as a kid, one day I was called to see a principal, you know, and I thought because of my drawings, my copy books were filled with drawings on the margin, margins. I never stopped drawing. I draw compulsively. And uh, the principal made me wait and then brought me in. I was, I thought I was ready to, to hear from her something really bad, but she said, oh, you're chosen to represent the school in a in a whole festival, arts festival wow. for, uh, you know, state schools. How, old was, you, schools. how old was you at this point? I was 14. Wow. I was 14. And then I said, wow, cool, you know. And I thought this was the prize. But uh, I spent a Sunday with kids that were just as weird as I was. <laughs> I felt very comfortable. And I remember <laughs> the things that I did. Every single thing I did, this, it was one of the happiest days in my life. And, uh, you know, that, that, that's a, when I was living... Somebody called my father and gave him a, an envelope. And then my father looked and said, oh, you got something. I had gotten the first prize of this, which was uh, uh, life drawing classes, academic drawing, you know, for two years, of course, uh, completely uh, was a, a scholarship for a place called uh, Escola Panamericana de Artes. So I was 14 and I spent all my afternoons drawing, drawing naked people. I didn't miss one class. You know? <laughs> I've never seen any naked person in my life before. And uh, what happens is like when uh, it, any kind of practice that involves uh, some kind of expertise that you become a little bit erudite when you, what you do, it's a little bit like uh, losing weight. You know, you, you lose a lot in the beginning, so you make a lot of progress, you know, and then when you're do, becoming very, very well by the second year, progress is slower, 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 and then you're always thinking, what, why am I doing this? Why do I do this? What was interesting is in, when I started questioning the reason for doing this, the answers came from, they were very pragmatic, and they came from philosophy, from psychology, from the idea, why do we see something something else? Why, how do representations work the way they do? How important are they to the functioning of society? How do they come up to actually create the whole concept of civilization as we know it, you know. And I became very interested in, in psychology. And in, in especially, you know, uh, I was today at uh, the Olafur show at, because I, the, we share a lot of things, especially like uh, what we, you, I, I read the book that he likes too, which is James Jerome Gibson, uh, The Census Considered, which is a guy who was trying to uh, develop better uh, interfaces for jet pilots in the 50s, you know, is an experimental uh, psychologist, psychologist from Princeton. Right. This guy developed a theory that, you know, this is called the theory of affordances, that the entire uh, ambient, there's no space, there's only ambience, cannot be measured, can be sensed, uh, becomes, it, it's a, the idea of perception as being a two way thing, an interaction. Uh, what do you mean, like when they're in the sky, what they see out of the window? Yeah, well, this guy, he had, there was the first studies of perception, they were aimed at one particular thing. But jet pilots, they were under extreme uh, stress 
because of the new kind of speed that they, and also uh, gravity forces that they were not seeing things upside down. So they had to figure out what was the ideal interface for the pilot to, but also they had to find out how the pilot saw things, the limits of how somebody can uh, understand uh, depth of field, for instance. Yes. Uh, People may ignore that, you know, like when I say uh, you made films and I'm still in photography, there's no such thing as a still picture. You know, the body moves and the body, in, in, in most cases, you know, most, uh, uh, our, our, the human eye is one really piece of primitive crap, you know, it's, a, it's the, it's the <laughs> it is designed is wor- is, it's design is worse than design of uh, fossil, tr- the eyes found on fossil trilobites 500 million years old. All the wiring that goes into the nerve optic and then it's transferred to the, to the optical cortex, it comes from the front. Imagine if you have like a, a, a camera, the, all the, 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 the wiring comes from the front of the lenses. It's really ridiculous. There's only one spot that is free. It's called fovea. And that accounts for, you know, a hundred and something degrees that you see for like three degrees only. In fact, uh, you see everything out of focus. There's only one spot that is probably the size of uh, your champagne glass right there that is in focus. And I keep, you just keep refreshing and changing, scanning frenetically all the, the visual sensorium. Uh, and it, a lot of animals do that. Like a frog doesn't do it, for instance. A frog sees everything on focus, right? And if it does, the frog doesn't need a, a fly, a dead fly. It's not because it doesn't like the taste, because he cannot see it. The moment the fly does this, he just grabs it. Because the the brain, this is something that we uh, can only understand movement. There are only, there's no such things, there are no things, only verbs. Yeah. For something to exist, it has to to move, it has to. Well, I, I pick that up from you know? Jurassic Park. They teach you that, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> the if, hard, if you the move, way, yeah. if you move, they're going to get you. So you got to stay way. still. Yeah. So we were talking about the Mona Lisa earlier. You mentioned, and you've actually made a work with the Mona Lisa that you made with uh, peanut butter and jelly, and you use a lot of food products, ketchup, chocolate sauce, and you use thread, and you use dust, and you've used diamonds. And you've used lots of elements, charcoal with, with the Ruin artworks. You're very drawn to um, substances that a lot of people would just ignore or not think about. They might think about diamonds. Or but, eat. Or eat. <laughs> or eat. Why, why do you think you're drawn to using these um, materials as part of your work? Okay, there's two ways of answering this. And one has to do with the previous question. Uh, when you walk towards a picture and I decided uh, at one point that I would make artworks to put on walls and the reason you have something on a wall is because it becomes uh, the whole experience becomes cinematic you you approach the wall and the picture that it changes as you approach it at one point it becomes like an image that's something that is product of somebody else's mind it's something it's an idea and everybody does that you know when it's in front comfortably in front of the picture swings the body back and forth uh, to see why do people do this, you know, just keep looking closer and farther. It's quite simple because it sees a picture, it sees what it represents as an idea, something from the mind. And then it gets closer to see the material in which, in the, the process in which that idea came about. So it goes back, it sees idea, it sees, goes 
closest is material, mind, matter, uh, consciousness, phenomenon. And it's art really doesn't happen in one place or another, but exactly in the point that you cross this threshold that separates what is within our minds and is outside uh, outside our bodies. You know, that uh, that it, that is really the for me is the sublime in art, the sensation that you you you're connected to that environment, you're connected, and being that environment, the social, uh, physical, it is something quite important to feel that. As, as a matter of fact, you know, when you ask me what art is, art is the evolution of this interface, this connection between what's inside of you and what's outside of you. It's a connection that's being fostered for, by, it's being the product of 65,000 years of, of, uh, of making tools. And you know? we're, still, we're still making them. Yeah. When you say uh, the, uh, my fascination for materials, it's because I think we've become, through the traditional techniques that we employ to make art, we become quite uh, numb to that particular phenomenon, you know. And uh, if I say, if I make your portrait with a pencil or oil paint, you'll be judging that by uh, the quality of the of resemblance, you know. That and my, our, our history. Yeah, by, by, yeah. by how accomplished, technically accomplished. I mean, so it's a whole different kind of useless set of rules when right. you come to think about the wonder of art. But if I make your portrait with... Uh, molasses and have ants walking on it, you know, and make it and blow it up to a huge scale, put it on a building. People are going to just go, oh, how big was this originally? How did they get the ants there? The ants eat the molasses. Who's this guy? So the moment you 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 start asking questions about what's in front of you, yeah. you're not just looking at something, you're trying to understand how you see something. And for me, that's the, the main difference between what's an image that can be considered art or just an image that's trying to sell you something. Uh, I worked with uh, molasses. <laughs> I uh, worked with uh, diamonds, garbage, um, bacteria. chocolate, bacteria. Uh, I've done things that cannot be visible by the naked eye. If you, I used like an electron microscope to actually document it. And I've done uh, works... Uh, with the aid of retro diggers, they have like one, two miles long. They had to photograph, be photographed with a, uh, with a helicopter. All of these things has nothing to do with the material or the scale. It has to do with the fact that that takes your mind outside the, the regular uh, practice of the way we make art. It's just mapping out what can be a representation. Yeah. But personally, for me, if I make a drawing... If I make art out of uh, oil paint or pencils, I'll stay in the studio all day long. But if I, it's, it's crazy. If I, right now, I'm trying to make art with people in Bangladesh in a in a in a in a, a refugee camp, making portraits out of seven thousand people. All the excuses, every material you pick, being it diamond, garbage, dust, it sets you in a different process, you know. And it, 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 you you find out different ways to do something. That we've been doing it for sixty five thousand years. It sounds like you're breaking down the traditions of what art is, of what people have people receive art. Then I, I think we all, every single artist, have done that. Yeah. You know, with different degrees of success, uh, you're trying to always refresh. I I was really interested in this idea that you were looking at um, sort of modern art heroes and people like 
Andy Warhol, very obviously, and then also Joseph Boys for the materiality. So you had these two kind of elements of like pop art and then Joseph Boyce with the materiality, which really does kind of succinctly sum up a lot of what you've done in a way in, in your work, that you can see those two influences. But th- there's a series you did that I loved, which um, was looking not at the front of an artwork, but at the back of the artwork. And you've, you've done it for a long time, maybe like 18 years now or something, but it's called Verso. Can you speak a bit about that, that project? Because I think it's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, you know, it's, you touched something very interesting that, that there is a, at the Hamburger Bahnhof in Berlin, there is in the collection, they have a $1 bill signed one side by Warhol and the other side by Joseph Boyce. I'll queue for that. Because <laughs> uh, for me, it's like, if, when you think, I try to think of the way, ways of dealing with iconography. I, I'm very close to Warhol. So you, you just don't really think about where it comes from. Think about how it affects you immediately. You know, uh, everything, if it's uh, done by Leonardo da Vinci or if it's an ad in a, in a, in a newspaper, those, it, it just have, you have to take it for the way it gets to you. Not, forget the source. And boys, because of the, the necessity of ritual, you know, and how ritual is how we connect to the physical body, to the physical world. How we make this almost shamanic um, connection with the things that are around us. So my, 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 my the way I deal with materials is very inspired by boys, and the way I deal with iconography is very inspired by by Warhol. People sometimes they have. A, uh, I start making new work. It takes a long time for people to actually connect to the most of the other things I do. But it, it's always been like that. You know, it, it's very, very hard to make the connection. Then it, it's made. I've been thinking for like 18 years about the necessity of, of thinking of the artwork as an object. Uh, it's a completely... I make art for galleries and museums because these places are the only remaining places where we can vi- ritualize visual experience. And people are so used to look at an image right through it, through the content, the very thin layer of content that, that it transmits. They forget about how they came about. That can, comes about, you know. It, in a museum, you know, it takes a lot more than a nail to hang a painting. And for 18 years, I've been doing this perfect, perfect. They're photorealistic uh, facsimiles of the world's most famous artworks. Uh, but you know, m- just say any artwork. The first one that comes to your head, very famous. Uh, sunflowers. Yeah, Van Gogh. I had that as well. Ooh, that's so funny. God. We had the same painting. That's why we've got a podcast. Okay. That's how famous that painting. That's is. how I go. That's how I go about choosing the pieces. Sunflowers. I've done it. Uh, Starry Night. I've done it. Uh, Mona Lisa. Mona Lisa. I've done it. Yeah. And the thing is, it, it occurred to me that I was at uh, Guggenheim, and I, I remember being with the director about almost 20 years ago, and I, they, they were rehanging the townhouse area. And I said to her, um, wow, that's the, the Picasso's Irene woman? And she said, yeah. Oh, it's one of my favorite paintings ever. Can I take a picture of the back? <laughs> and then she said, yeah, sure. I said, can I come tomorrow with a large 8x10 camera and take a picture of the back? She said, no problem. And then I took pictures of that one, the Kandinsky, wow. the, the Leger, the smokers. I took and so they all have all the stickers from the galleries, like historical. All the and... stickers in it, because the picture, you know, when you uh, finish the front of the painting, yeah. you varnish it, and that's supposed to stay like that forever. Yeah. 
The back, however, changes continuously. It tells a story that no, is organic. The, the people don't care about stapling the back, punching holes, drilling through it. You know, these things like this, sometimes they cost $50 million. You wouldn't do that to the chassis of a Ferrari. You know, it's a, it, even though you don't see it, yeah. you just take it completely, it's, it's, it's the back. And the back looks like the artist's studio, you know. Well, uh, I started asking other museums. I, I asked Kirk Varnado if he could do it at MoMA. And to my surprise, he said, which one do you want, Demoiselle d'Avignon? And, and I said, yeah, yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. So I did a whole bunch of them at MoMA and then the Art Institute of Chicago. And I'm a museum rat since I'm a kid. As I said, when I moved to to U.S., I, I love museums. I, 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 you know, and I get to know people. Uh, you like watching people as well. You like I do that like a snooping lot, on people lot, and how they yeah. look at art. Yeah. Well, that's how you learn how they look at it. You yeah. know, it helps you to make it. Um, so it it went on until the point I said this. I made the uh, life size photographs because they, they were really really good scans and chromes, but they were stupid. You know, just a picture of the back. They had they are like they had nothing in it. And I said, what about if I just remake the, an object? Because it would be the opposite of a Trump lawyer. Now, normally the Trump lawyer is supposed to flatten something that's three-dimensional. You have something in your head that's just the front of it, which is the image. And I only work with images that you know. If, by, if you get like one label, you read it, it pops up in your head. So I started making this counter-Trump lawyer, whatever. But and the, I got... Man, I got to, I, for six years, I asked the Louvre if I could do the Mona Lisa. I'm, so, I'm such a pain in the ass that they let me do it. Oh, they did. Wow. And uh, uh, finally, they said, let's do it. Let's get rid of this guy. Uh, so I, I, the Mona Lisa only gets out of uh, its place the first uh, Monday of November when a team from Uffizi comes, and only 25 people can stay inside the museum. Uh, they, 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 normally, they let other people in. They're normally like a, usually Madonna, Bono, something like that. You know, and they let me in and, and Barry Fryer, who works with me on this project. The first year, they were very suspicious of us. So we were measuring everything. But then we started working with them. We couldn't find the same board. So we had to buy a tree in Tennessee because it's the same almond. And Leonardo made it very easy because he wrote the way it was supposed to be cut, everything. So, and it's packed with electronics in the back so, because it has a little um, a, a gap that's fixed with a butterfly joint. So if that gap widens one micron, somebody gets an SMS. So the, the Mona Lisa has an IP address. Um, it's, it sits behind the thickest piece of glass or the most expensive piece of glass ever. Uh, it's, it's crazy. It's really cool. But then you, you, the people, when we were making it, they saw our dedication in, in, in making these things as close as we could. And they asked us to come again and to show. I have this on my Instagram. You can check it. I so have hang on. So you looked at the back of the frame and you recreated the back of the frame in the way that... Exactly. Everything. Well, the way, the way we had a show, the last show we did was at the Belvedere in, in Vienna. Uh, because I also work with the museum. Sometimes I do the shows that right. we did the uh, the Kiss Klimt. Yeah. Uh, so, but uh, so we we they just lean against the walls, as if the show hasn't been hung yet. So th- when people come in, a lot of them just turn around and leave because they think they shouldn't be it's there. Not been hung. But if they stay a little bit, they start reading, and then they see uh, Nighthawks Hopper, American Gothic, uh, the Scream. And, and, uh, and I just uh, just finished uh, 
Las Meninas and Maja Desnuda and Maja Vestida. Can you, can you believe these people are crazy? No, like, not really. <laughs> With all respect to the directors of Prado, but if, if somebody like me comes to see me and say, can I take Las Meninas out of the door so I can make a picture of it? I'd say no. You know, but, but this is just a picture of the back of it, and then you, you they're, we they're remake the whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. We but remake, how do you make them though out of these materials, like with peanut butter? Yeah. They do no, research. no, no, no. We no, no, made no, them with wood, with yeah. screen, exactly with, as yeah, they are. Exactly as they are. Uh, for you to have an idea, like when Rembrandt, uh, uh, like a uh, anatomy lesson, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, anatomy lesson was relined in the early 19th century with a herringbone pattern that is no longer available anywhere. So we have scouts, people going after uh, fabrics all over the world to see if we can do exactly the same fabric. We couldn't do it. So we had to, 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 um, to make the fabric. So there was a, we found a woman. So she has these weaving machines from uh, the, 18th, 17th century, which she, she motorizes them. She lives upstate, upstate New York. So we had to actually do, do the whole uh, 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 canvas, you know. It took about a year and a half to do it. But Did then you get in trouble for counterfeiting and stuff? Is anyone like, no, worried? No, it's the back. Gonna... The back, nobody cares, you know. And also, I, I've always loved the back of paintings. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing history. because, I know, but I think it's because when we started, we, we, when we were growing up, we started saving up all our money and buying artworks. And one of the things I discovered is when you buy an artwork, if it's been, if, say it's 10 years old, it will have ex been exhibited all over the world, especially, so something I, I bought, one of the first things I ever bought was in the Turner Prize. And one of the stickers on the back was Tate Britain Turner Prize. And then wow. it had been in like Malaga, it had been in New York, it had been in Japan. And, and I felt like I sort of had somehow traveled with this work. And almost every time I look at that watercolor in my house now i think of all those places like but do you take I, the picture off the wall now and have a look i do yeah. yeah and like yeah, i get I really that. i find it really romantic yeah and that's why i loved that series verso yeah, that you yeah. made so much because i don't think other people unless you've lived with an artwork you might not realize or think about it as it, this yeah. romance or something yeah. and i've always thought there's a film in it or there's some kind of yeah. story about it or but that's your work because you you make people challenge what they take for granted that's what you want people to do and you would take for granted something and then you're making them rethink it but you know that when you look at the verso of a picture that you know what the front looks like, you know, exactly when I was mentioning before that connection between having a picture in your head yeah. that you probably see from a reproduction and then you get to see it, it as an object, it's something else, you know, that you have to sort of reconfigure whatever it's in your head. You have to, uh, you know, update it somehow. And that's, that's what's very, very important. I mean, uh, uh, I, I think... Uh, it also speaks about something else that's quite contemporary. You know, uh, we've come, we've migrated recently from a state of visual convention. Mm -hmm. So we looked at the painting, and if everybody agrees that that is a painting, what what makes uh, something legit is what we could agree upon visual examination. You know, to a, a different type of uh, legitimization, which is based on only based based on codes. The example, good example is money, you know. Um, before people look at uh, a, a dollar bill or a pound bill, the, the people go like, oh yeah, this is good. And if, it, it, you would accept it, you know. Now, in order for that to be good, it has to have a magnetic strip. Only two people can uh, uh, agree that that's real. The verso has all this little, uh, the verso of a painting has all this little, so it's very interesting that what makes something legitimate is where nobody's looking at. 
what, what where people don't have access to. If you get a vase, you know that makes the the real McCoy. We we say it in the, whatever whatever it makes that vase a, a, the real McCoy legit is what's in the base of the vase. So I think uh, um, to to think that something is real based on what you cannot see, mm. it's a it's quite novel and quite interesting. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, you've been described as an illusionist with your art. Do you, do you like that phrase being attributed to you? Yeah, yeah but you know, you have to understand there are two types of illusion. You know, there is illusion that is made with the soul, is produced with the sole intent of making your mind veer off from reality and accept something that's utterly, you know, impossible. Uh, that kind of illusion, you have it on like a, a virtual reality now. You Spielberg, George Lucas were great proponents of this type of being at the edge of technology where you say you see, some, you really believe what you're saying, you know. I cannot compete with these guys. I don't have the capital distribution. I don't even have the, the you know, I'm, I'm lazy. So I prefer to work on the other side of the spectrum of illusion, which is work at the worst possible illusion. You know, it's an illusion that although it's extremely primitive, it's extremely stupid, you go, you look at it, you go, how did I fall for this? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not about fooling people. It's about creating in the mind of the expectator, the public, giving it a measure of their own belief, how much we depend on illusion to be able to communicate the simplest of ideas. Mm. You know, the words, words are illusionistic devices. You know, you have to believe that they signify things. My shadow is... So every type of representation relies on a suspension of belief to be able to to become functional. Mm. Uh, We are constantly letting ourselves being fooled in order to apprehend the world, in order to communicate it as well. The same way uh, walking is about falling and catching yourself. Regaining from, from, your, yeah. yeah. So I think it's a, um, uh, I, I, sometimes I feel kind of, I feel sorry for people who believe in, in the truth, uh, in this kind of objectivity that excludes the fact that it, it, you wouldn't be able to explain it. So you're predominantly a photographer and you create these works and then you photograph them and they're beautiful works that are made out of, say, chocolate or thread, yarn, and then you destroy them afterwards. They're they're broken down, right? Some some of them, yeah. But some of the ones, if you kept some of the ones that you've made with food products? Yeah, yeah. How do they they survive? Oh, they they really don't because even the ones that are made out of paper that have been, you know, they are glued with such a little, I do it with wax. Yeah. 
things start falling from them. They're never they never ended up looking like uh, uh, the original thing. Um, How do you feel about that? Is that something that upsets you, or I'm sure it's up, upset the collector who's bought well, it? Well, no, no, the collector will take the picture. You know, the, the picture has a life of its own. If it lives on the sun, it will deteriorate the same way. I mean, everything everything fades eventually. But um, but I, I the idea of the, the photo. I, I have a, a story. Um, once I went to the dentist in New York, and um, I was waiting to do a root canal, and I was reading what was going on in the city, and I heard that at the Asia Society they were doing a Tibetan Tibetan mandala, you know, and I said, "Well, later I'll that go there." A, a mandala it? is a drawing made out of uh, uh, colored sand, yeah, very, very, extremely detailed that takes weeks to make it, and the monks, the moment they finish it, they start sweeping it to be thrown in the river, right? As most literature you find in dentist office is, is uh, out of date, I, I arrived with my head completely numb uh, uh, at the Asian society, and in fact, they were sweeping in a, it out. And I looked at just one part of it. It was amazing. And then I, there was a monk there, and I asked him, I said, come on, man, did, did you work on this? He said, yeah. And I said, don't you feel bad that they're just sweeping the whole thing? And he goes... It gives me that monk stuff, you know, like uh, no, the important thing is the the way <laughs> that monk <laughs> stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, so that in I'm me, man. I 36 years in New York, man. I I don't take that monk stuff. <laughs> so I go like, uh, oh come on, man, just a little bit. Man, come on, just just to me. Okay, I won't tell anybody. Just give it to me. Give me the real um, monk yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he goes like, no, no, no. It's the it's the most important thing. If you do this, man. I said, come on, man. <laughs> So I pestered him so much that at one point he stuck his hand in his orange robe and said, okay, I took some pictures. <laughs> With his iPhone. His yeah, he had iPhone. to document it. No, he had a camera, you know. There, was, there were no cameras in phones, phones then. But the idea, I took some pictures, you know. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting. We don't think about this. The moment you look at a painting or you look at that mandala, the moment you turn your head, you don't have it anymore. It's in your head. You won't be able to remember with precision, the colors, the elements that are in it, you know, and if you take a picture, you also look at your picture and you have to leave the picture go. The relationship between what we have in our heads, and, and we spend very little time trying to uh, create discernment about what are the pictures in our heads, what do they look like? For instance, if I say um, Paris, right now, Everybody in this room has a picture that's in a postcard. The Eiffel Tower. You know, it's yeah. the Eiffel Tower and the curve of the sand like this. Uh, so, what? I, for instance, I did a series of postcards that I, I'm interested in making pictures that look like the pictures that you have in your head. Right. Uh, when you have, you make this Paris picture in your head right now, it has a lot of buildings from London, from Cleveland, from Rome, from wherever you, you make it up. It's not accurate, you know. It's just a construct that you're just pushing things from the background to the foreground of your visual field and try to... I'm fascinated by the picture in your head. By the imagination. I know, I was going to say that as well, because the imagination is such a big part of your work. And that's why I think your work is so successful. When I mentioned to people that we were meeting you and going to interview you, everyone smiled 
and was like, I love his work. And people are very positive <laughs> about your work, though. Well, and I know, no, but it, there's a friend of mine in New York who saw a work you did, which she said was one of the most special things she ever saw, which was um, you got a plane to fly and kind of oh, almost yeah. like sign writers, but they, they write in the sky. And you created these clouds in yeah. 2001. It looks like The Simpsons. Yeah. The yeah, these kind of clouds. And she said that that just gave her such incredible joy yeah. and that she's kept it and often thinks about it when she's still looking at the New York sky now. Nobody's going to do that again. Yeah, of course, since September the 11th. Is so yeah. Tragic, yeah, if you have a little plane to uh, spring yeah, of 2001, yeah, yeah. you, know, you know, when you go to Trafalgar, Trafalgar Square or Washington Square, there's always a guy na- making caricatures, right? Yeah. You, you see there's very, the dynamics of that's quite fascinating because you have one victim the person who's, have, who's the character is being made. And then you have like 30 people behind the guy drawing, like looking <laughs> at the drawing. Watching somebody draw is something quite interesting. It gives you pleasure, you know? Like you see like all those YouTube, uh, like, a, 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 you know, a little... Somebody gets like, and yeah. stuff, yeah, yeah. And, uh, uh, and what... But I thought maybe what if you do this, give it a sort of a broadcast quality of something, a physical drawing being made. When a plane starts making a line in the sky, you're always thinking about what is this guy going to sell to me, right? What is he going to sell? And then at the end, all he does is a drawing of a really cartoonish cloud. (laughs) And the best part, the cloud moves, you know, and you're, I I did this, I photographed him on my phone. I keep like getting messages and one of them, I'm doing my manicure in a building. I just saw it pass on the <laughs> reflection of a building on 6th Avenue. And uh, all I wanted to do also is to do a cloud that means nothing but a cloud because clouds can mean anything you want, right? They're very plastic. They're very, uh, and still, uh, I got a letter from uh, one that I did on the, it was on the west side. And there was a letter that went like this, uh, uh, Dear Vic, uh, our son just passed away. He was a very loved uh, uh, little league baseball coach. We he had three sports bars midtown, and uh, he, you know, he was thirty eight years old. He died of cancer, and I'm writing you this to you because I would like to invite you for dinner because something quite magical happened on on the cortege. He it was a huge amount of cars going on the West Side highways. West Side Highway that afternoon, and then everybody looked to the left. They saw a huge baseball glove. Oh, it was oh, my cloud. Wow. You know? And I said, wow. it wasn't me, it was the wind. Wow. It turned oh, into wow. a, a, a... And then and I went to have dinner with them, you know? And I gave them a little print. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> but uh, uh, th- you see, this is what I live for. You know, like you do something and also you have a chance to interact with the world in a different way, you know? At, we sometimes we we've been bumping into chances to do work that it's important. It can be important for it's always important for me because I'm I'm very curious and I'm very engaged in everything that I that do. The work with Ruinart was amazing because I get to learn a lot of things. You know, there's always to keep this student mind. You know, all the time. But I a lot of the stuff that I do, like uh, the uh, wasteland, like working with people in the garbage. I went there. I saw these people. I said, maybe I will do something about. I work with them. That uh, gave me the opportunity to start working with people. Uh, you know, I share my work in the gallery wall, in the museum wall, in the, an art fair. But then I started sharing my work, the making of my work, with different, completely different people, and it was such a joy to be able to 
pass that on too. You know, people who had never done any kind of art or people who were scientists who actually could inform me completely, mm. give me completely different information about how to make art. And, uh, and, and it's amazing things happen. Right now I am working, the, there was a terrible thing. And I'm, normally I'm, I'm, a, I'm a very cold person. I tend to be very pragmatic about things that happen up around me. I feel bad about it. So I'm almost a psychopath. But I, um, but I don't get very, I'm not the person that, you know, cries too much. And not that I'm a macho Latin guy, and I'm not far from that, but uh, I, I don't cry. I only cry on cartoons for some reason. Uh, but I, I don't. Uh, well, hang on, we need a cartoon you've cried at then. Which cartoon have you uh, cried at? Finding Nemo. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. terrible. Yeah, Bambi. Yeah. Bambi, I don't watch Bambi's it. Bambi's the like, worst yeah. one for yeah. crying, yeah. <laughs> I think it's trauma. <laughs> but I, but I, uh, I, for instance, when I was in Holland doing work, uh, and in a, in a, all of a sudden I see the news, and the place where I go all the time and take my kids, you know, which is called the Museo Nacional, which is a sort of a huge cabinet of curiosities that uh, belonged to the king, of, the last king of Brazil, Dom Pedro II. It was in it was in a blaze. It was the whole thing got destroyed. It was such a painful thing that I could not go there anymore. And the idea that we were talking about the material patrimony, like the idea of you being able, your mind being able to travel through little things. You know, they had the the oldest skull that that was found in the in the American continent. It was called Lucia, like because of Lucy by the Leakies and that, and. Um, they had mummies. They had a cat, cat mummy. They had all these amazing things. And I cried. I, I, couldn't, I could not hold my anger that they let that burn. You know, that was so horrible. And then I, I had to work with that. It's, it's always like that. So I, I, I went there and I talked to them. And what they're doing there is fascinating. They're doing a meta uh, archaeology. They are digging like archaeologists in places where things, for things that were already dug somewhere else. It's so, so weird. Right. And by being there and becoming familiar with their process, I befriended them. So they, I started giving me whatever goes through the sifter, like, but they're very precise. So, so I, they gave me the dust from Luzia, from the skull. Wow. So I remake from old pictures and also I'm 3D printing uh, because they had uh, uh, tomographies of the skull uh, with the dust. So... You're making a reproduction that yeah. contains atoms from this human being that walked like 12,000 oh years God. ago. Wow. So and they're uh, excavating that site and treating that like oh, an archaeological dig again, right? It's amazing. It's wow. amazing. So the whole, metal, I'm, yeah. I'm uh, making now, I, I want to 3D, 3D print uh, a whale and a dinosaur that they had there with the ashes. Because it's, what do you do with that? Yeah. You know, what, how do, then you go again, how do you, you have nothing in that image in your head that you can compare to again. You lost, it's a link that is lost. So it's a, I'm not really trying to reconstruct it, but I'm trying to, to create a sort of a poetics mm. of how these things are lost forever, you know? Mm. It's also transformation. I feel like transformation is a theme in your work that kind of runs through every single part of what you've done. And even, you know, the wasteland work you did and the kind of, it almost became like a therapy somehow because I feel like the people you collaborated with who were working on this um, site outside Rio de Janeiro, it's, isn't it the largest uh, waste site Recycling in the world? Like a, it used to be a close. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's closed. Okay, it's closed. It is, yeah. I didn't know that. Well, one of the reasons for that film to be happening was b 
because this was an Oscar nominated documentary. Yeah, man. it was uh, uh, the place they the people who lived from garbage, and they were at the verge of losing that, you know, and they had to do something with their lives. And uh, when I tried to work with garbage before, but it was extremely dangerous because the the narco traffic hides stuff weapons under the garbage. Do they? And uh, so if you you cannot work, it's a very dangerous working environment. So the you know you see like. 14-year-old kids with, you know, Kalashnikovs. Oh, my God. It's not good. I have a school in the favela in Vizigal. You know, it's, that's the environment. Brazil, Rio is like a, a 65,000 people. Brazil, 65,000 murders, you know, in the year. It's like it's the worst. It's, it's like a war mm. zone. Yeah. I live there. And I, I have to say to you, I love living in Rio, mm, you mm, know. Mm. But, you, but you actually got shot. That's how your career started. In- yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a long story though. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good one though. Yeah, but yeah. Well, but I'll tell that at the end. Then. Okay. Uh, but you know, the, the the idea that you start, I was very lucky. You know, I think uh, once I was talking to Oscar Niemeyer, the architect. You know, he said it doesn't matter how good you are, how creative, uh, how great an artist you can be, if you don't, you know have people who believe in what you do that you can start like to generate a, a feedback loop you know like that you that people are going to go like hey come on this is good do more and that grows it starts becoming contagious you know that you're not it, if you don't find that person it's going to be very hard for you to affirmations become, to, everyone to, needs to affirmations your... it's also a conversation isn't it I think yeah. to be an artist you have to be having a two way conversation yeah you, exactly it's and only I, activated by an audience I, I think I only do half of the work. The other half is uh, the audience is what comes into it. I mean, I, I have a very respected uh, artist that I once was, I was in an audience like this. This one, I'm not going to tell who she is because she's, she's gone. Uh, and then she, she said, she used to say, tell to everyone, she was a friend, and she said, oh, I only make art for myself. And I, I raised my head and said, so how come you do editions then? You know, <laughs> so I I do I doubt yeah. people sincerely make art for themselves. You know, I I think uh, in when you make art and you're conscious that you're not making it for yourself, you have to be completely respectful of the baggage of the knowledge that the viewer brings into that encounter. That's why I only work with archetypes, with icons, things that are somewhat part of they're familiar to the people who are going to see what I do. So I try to facilitate that communication so I can bring it to a much higher level. Some people usually look at it and call it facile and think it's, you know, uh, all because I'm, I'm communicating with a wider range. When I, I came back to Brazil 10 years ago and I started showing more and more work in Brazil, I did like uh, the opening credits for a soap opera, which is huge in Brazil. If you do that, uh, you get... You work exposed for two minutes for 45 million people daily, six days a week for 10 months. Not even Coca-Cola, Apple. They cannot afford that kind of media. You know? and, but the, the establishment, the critics, they were very mean to me you mm. know, because I was making something accessible. But the advantage of this is you can go to the smallest city in the middle of the Amazon, get into, into a taxi, and you say, Oh, you know my work? I'm an artist. He said, no, I don't know anything. I live in the jungle. And I said, do you know, remember the soap opera, Passione, in the beginning, when you have that thing that looks like garbage, and when it comes up, it's like two people kissing. Did you do that? <laughs> That's it. Uh, my parents never set foot in a museum or a gallery before I had a show in it. And I'm very 
very conscious of that. I mean, great art has to have that power of communicating right. in many, many levels. You have, you have to be able to talk to the, the, the museum director and you have to be able to talk to the people who clean it. You know, it's, a, it's important that it's you... It's actually one of the reasons we set the podcast up. Was, was to try and like break down the elitism because I work in an art gallery and so many people will say to me, just go silent. You go for a dinner party and people just like, here I work in a gallery and they don't want to talk because they, they feel like they're not informed enough to be able to talk to me about you art. You are quite intimidating. Though. I am quite intimidating. <laughs> yeah. but, um, no, but it really, it really upset me actually because I was like, well, actually, I want as many people as possible to understand yeah. and engage with art. Yeah, yeah. And that inclusivity is what I love so yeah. much about what you do. Uh, our motto is art for everyone. Yeah, art for everyone. But can I ask you one thing? So something that really struck me in my research while I was looking into it your whole life was the amount of ideas you have like you seem to be someone who doesn't sleep very much at all I know no. you do suffer from insomnia but you seem to have a lot of energy regardless but um how many what's the percentage ratio from like the successful ideas and then the ideas that maybe never happen are, are there quite a lot of ideas that never happen or failures or oh, well, I'm not gonna, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> 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 I prefer to I, I have I could do a whole lecture just about failing which is important too. yeah, yeah. yeah. um I, I i once tried to do like copy the rgb patterns of a billboard you know because i used to work the, what, the what the the dot pattern color dot patterns with m&ms hopeless right they'll never try well, like a like a them. like a Liechtenstein sort of pop yeah up. yeah oh, right, but right. but trying to put them like close to another see if i could create <laughs> interference you know like a Cruz Diaz, the, 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 the op artist does. Yeah. If you just get on the proximity, you create color. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I tried so many things that didn't work. Were they peanut M&Ms or chocolate? Huh? Were they peanut <laughs> or chocolate? You know what? I, I, I had to paint some of them right. to be able to get the right colors as well. Yeah. I was not even cheating. You could get that right. <laughs> uh, so I, I think uh, uh, I, I was once with... I, uh, another artist I'm not going to name it although it was Shri, you've got to start naming Shri Neshat <laughs> <laughs> we were talking at the witness she was saying about making films you know and you think you, you touched that subject before I love making films but I, the, the problem with film is that the moment you see something moving you stop to watch it you know you, the, the first tendency is that and I never quite understood, for instance, video art because, uh, you know, I was married to an artist who was a video artist for a while. And then once somebody asked me, what, what is video art for you? I said, well, it's just like the movies, but they don't have chairs. <laughs> the, 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 I, I love video art that creates sec sequences and it, it's designed for you to go through it. But it, uh, most of the time it's just watching a film sitting on a pillow. I, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, you know, I... Something that stays on the wall, you know, you move towards it and you animate it. I don't, I don't, I think I lost the question. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. We, you're, you're, you're looking for a narrative. Oh, no, 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 yeah. no. no. You, you say, yeah, but f films, films. Oh, it's too many ideas, see? Uh, you do have many yes, ideas. Yeah. So yeah. films was a failure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I, was, I was in a talk with, this other, with a filmmaker and she said, well, it's, uh, uh, I, I have uh, all these ideas, you know, and then I have to get all these people to do them. Yeah. You know, it's very hard. And I said to her, God, man, I have all these ideas. I have only one person to do them. It's harder, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think if you want to make bad art, you start with a great idea. It is uh, one of the things that are most, perhaps the most difficult lessons that you have to learn is how to uh, manage uh, and 
your creative impulses over to to have a career that you know it's less 30 years 30, three yeah. decades now and how how to let ideas mature if you have a good idea you do it right away you'll regret it because ideas are uh, they have to be tested they have to be forgotten they you have to remember them again um so my problem right now is i i, I leave a lot of these ideas floating like a uh, like a letter soup what and soup? what soup? Letter, like soup? a letter soup. A yeah. lettuce letter, soup. Letter, letter, letter. letter. Oh, a letter soup. Yeah. Letter soup. <laughs> Lots of letters. It's like like letter in a soup. soup. Is that how like you say it? Yeah. You know, alphabet, um, alphabet, alphabet soup. Oh, alphabet, alphabet soup. Alphabet spaghetti. Pardon, pardon my English. <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Got it, got alphabet it. soup. Alphabet yeah. soup. Got it. Alphabet yeah. soup. So, you know, and they start coagulating, like getting, getting little sentences. You get words. And by the, by, by the, the time you have an essay right there, you you're good to actually go and test them in the physical world, but I, but ideas are are I mean if you live again uh, if if you expose yourself to situations uh, to processes and also to people you know in a completely you have the, the first thing is you cannot discriminate anything you can be with no prejudice whatsoever uh, you're open to that you know the amount. Of things that are going to come, they, they you that will happen naturally. Artists at the end, they're just like big filters that just float through time, collecting sediments that will end up hanging in people's walls. I mean, but uh, you have to that thing has to be natural, you know that you cannot force it. I have every time I have a, an idea that is like I have, I know that I'm going to have to do it. I almost resent it. Because uh, you know I'm Brazilian, so you know it's like God, I'm gonna have to do that. You know, uh, it. I much rather just stay on a hammock reading a book. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I like working. I too. think you have way too much energy to to yeah. rest on a hammock. Yeah, yeah. So now it's a double espresso that I just had. Oh. Okay, good. So we we ask every guest who comes on our podcast two questions. Very tough. Very tough. It's investigative Ooh. journalism mm-hmm. um, at its best. Uh, the first <laughs> one is um, if you could do an art heist and steal any artwork and take it home, and it could be any size. Um, like huge or tiny or anything. It doesn't have to go in your pocket. We could get you a crane or a van or anything you need to help. Mm. Um, what would you take home? Uh, it would be very hard to 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 steal, very hard to hide. Uh, <laughs> it would be Daphne and Apollo by Bernini wow. from the uh, Villa Borghese, yeah. Wow. I would describe, love, describe that work of art. Oh, uh, it's, a, it's a huge marble piece which has uh, Daphne being touched by Apollo and transformed into a tree. Uh, it's, I could live looking at that thing <laughs> because every time I go to Rome a lot, you know, I think this year I've been like four times. Every time I'm in Rome, I go see that. That's your touchstone. Oh. Yeah. yeah, it is like... Have you ever recreated that artwork? Uh, it's impossible to recreate. Oh, even okay. by, by, by... Even standards. by you? Yeah. Surely not. There's, a, I, there's another one though. I give you an extra okay. one. Okay. It's, a, it's a painting by Rubens. Yeah. called uh, Clara Serena is a portrait of his daughter and if uh, you know imagine when you know somebody very well you have a tendency to overlook certain things because your your emotions sort of take your uh, pragmatism when you you're drawing right he has a picture of his five-year-old daughters without the, the symmetries like it's, it's, it's not a symmetrical one eye slightly bigger than the other she's tiny bit uh, cross-eyed and uh, the the mouth has a different curve. It is perfect. 
it is perfect, but it, you can never tell a picture that's so perfectly, clinically drawn with so much love and affection. You know, this is when, uh, when we're talking about material and mind. You could never get something that is so accomplished. And that one, I would love to have it too. And where is that on display? Is it on display in this the is, museum? Uh, it's, uh, it belongs to the princely collection of Liechtenstein. Uh, it's, it, it's perhaps in the museum over there. It was at the Prado recently. Oh, great. I'll yeah. get you that. Uh, the, other, <laughs> the other question we ask is, what is your favorite color? Purple. Oh, we've got a super fan yeah. at the front here. Purple. Yeah. I like purple and I like the op- I like orange too. Yeah. The two. He loves orange. Yeah. I love orange. My two favorite colors are purple and orange. Do you use purple a lot in your work? No. Do you use orange a lot in your work? No. Great. <laughs> so why why purple and why why orange or why purple? I don't know because they're not uh, they're not uh, purple especially is not a color that is uh, often occurring. You know. You just when you see it, you see it. It it, it becomes very. Uh, it almost it you, it pops up when you see Vibrant. something purple because you don't see it everywhere. Because mm. in nature, I always find purple to be incredibly striking. So when you see purple flowers, because you're right, because it, it's not everywhere. It does, and also that um, our friend Pedro was obsessed with the idea of purple rain and how beautiful that Prince, song was yeah. by Prince. But how poetic that song is, and this idea of purple rain because yeah. Anyway, that's on another podcast episode. <laughs> which you can listen to. Yeah, which you, you can listen to. Yeah. <laughs> Pedro Pascal. Oh, I have a big, I have a, uh, there's an artist, uh, uh, they were a collective, a Pruton early in the 80s. They used to get people from the art world to do this thing where they, they used to do a karaoke, like a, a voiceover with a video. So it, in I Am Prince in one of these Oh, really? They did a Madonna one. Is that the same artist? Huh? They got everyone to sing it a cappella. No, it's... this no, this was with the with the playback and everything. Wow! And uh, you know, and I I'm makeup. I'm skinny as hell. It's just like 35 years ago. Oh my god! And I tell you, I am Prince. Wow! <laughs> well, his spirit lives on. Well, I hope we can find I love that online Prince so much. I hope you can't. Well. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you, you are so much. a lovely man. I just want to add that you did. You have been quoted as saying that you make art for your mum. You were saying you make art for everyone, but you, if your mum appreciates your artwork, <laughs> then you know it's a success, right? I think uh, you know. I'm, I'm particularly happy when she. I know that she likes it. Yeah, and she's not just saying it to make me happier. Yeah, yeah, I feel the same. I feel the same. And me. And also, this podcast only exists because of our mums. Yeah. Our mums both wrote to us after we did an interview together and said that they'd learned loads about art and could we do it as a regular show? And that's why it happened. Yeah. So well, congrats. Thank you, Congratulations mums. to everybody. And uh, sorry, to everyone who has a great mum. We love mums. Yeah. I don't know why I just congratulated everybody. It was just a, a random flourish there. Yeah, I love it. Love it. Congratulations, everyone. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Vic. It's yes. been such a privilege to speak with you. And thank you to everyone for listening. Yeah. And um, also a big shout out to Ruinar who have um, helped Amazing. Yes, bring thank us you, together with, with Vic. Yeah. And uh, we will be back very soon. And, and if you gonna... want images, uh, they're all going to be on the Talk Art page, on the Instagram, which you can follow, and you can follow the feed, and it'll be all images of it. Yeah, there's work. a really cool story behind it. The project was quite beautiful, too. Yeah. Check what, it out. The, the Prince one. The Ruinar. Oh, the Ruinar one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the and Prince also, And, the and Prince what is your Instagram so people can follow you? It's just my name. It's V I K M U N I Z. Yeah. Perfect. Hang oh. on a minute. Just tell us after you got shot, what happened? Oh, man. <laughs> this is just a little like Bruce Okay. Bonus. Okay. Uh, I, I was uh, hired by a, a right 
I went to advertising school. I couldn't enter psychology school. I wasn't smart enough. So I started uh, the first year. I took a self-assignment because I, I could not read any billboards in the city. And I thought it was me because I was dyslexic, you know. But uh, I realized that it wasn't me. The billboards were really placed in the most stupid ways. They would uh, put like uh, billboards. They were parallel to the road big roads that you could drive very quickly. So you'd have to read backwards four lines of text with cursive font at a huge speed to be able to buy whatever they were selling. So I could never read any of those. One day with my mom, I was, went to pick up a check with her at the bank. So I went to, uh, she, I said, mom, can you read that? She said, no. <laughs> so I went and went 10 kilometers an hour slower. And then I said, what about now? She said, no. So I went 10 kilometers, and I kept making notes. Before I knew, I had a chart that crossed vectors of angle of approach, speed, and size, text, number of lines to help to facilitate the readability of billboards. And I, I got a job because of that. I went. There were only two, two companies that dealt with that in Sao Paulo at the time. One was called Alvo, that means target. And I went there, and I said, listen, I can make your billboards better. If you don't hire me, I'll go to your competitor. He hired me with a really, really shitty salary. <laughs> But uh, I started working with this. And for that chart, I won a prize for the association, of the new, new talent for the Association of, Bu- of Advertising of Sao Paulo. The day I went to pick up the prize, I rented for the first time a tuxedo in my life. I felt really odd. I went to this place, as you know, <laughs> didn't know anybody, drank a beer, picked up the ugly plexiglass trophy that they gave me. Went into my uh, Volkswagen Beetle, and when I was around, when around, right in front of the event, a woman stops my car like this, and she said, "You have to help me. There, this guy is killing my fiance." And in fact, there was two people dressed in tuxedos. One of them hitting the other with breast knuckles. Looked like something from a James Bond film. And uh, I went there and I I pushed one of them, you know, and he ran away. And the guy who got hit. You know, and I just turned back and my car was in the middle of the street, so I had to take the car out of the street. So I was going towards my car. The guy who got hit reached to his car, reached to a gun, and he decided to shoot the first person wearing a tuxedo. Think about that next time you go to a black tie party. <laughs> so he, I, I, all of a sudden I was I just going to my car and then I was on the floor. I didn't understand what was going on. So I, re- I turned back. And I saw this guy just shooting at me, like, pa, 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 pa. I tell this to everybody. Nobody ever believed me. And I only saw it again when I saw the movie Matrix. I saw bullets. You know? <laughs> I saw bullets. You saw them in slow mo I said, I saw them. You. I saw the bullets. And I said, no, you cannot see bullets. I said, I did see the bullets. <laughs> and then I got into the car. And I don't remember. I just kept reminding, reminding me of the hospital, which is called Hospital Santa Catarina. That was the closest one. I woke up uh, three days later. I had hit the side, uh, 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 a garden, wild garden in the side of the hospital. My maxilla came like Duffy Duck came all big. And they thought was, I was dying from uh, uh, head trauma until somebody went after me and they said, no, he got shot. And then was, I got shot in the leg, you know. Luckily, it wasn't fatal. But when I woke up, the first thing I saw was the guy who had shot me. He was in the same hospital. 
He was full of bandages. He looked, and then I thought that I had died and going to mom, gone to mummy hell. <laughs> and I said, I couldn't even scream because I couldn't talk. So, and then he said, I'll pay all your medical expenses. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I, I was, you know, it, it was an accident. It wasn't an accident that he had a gun. That's the only, <laughs> you know, that's why. That was planned. <laughs> yeah. If he didn't have a gun, he wouldn't have done that. Yeah. But then and he said, I'll, I'll compensate you so you don't forget. Don't, please don't, don't file a police charges, which I, I understood. And, I did. and he gave me the money that I used to buy a ticket to go to the U.S. in 1982. And that's primarily the main reason why I'm talking to you today, because I got shot in the leg. This is, this is how lucky I am. Yeah. <laughs> that's a perfect how to fail story, isn't it? Look at that. Well, thank you Round so much. All right, amazing guys. story amazing to finish story. off yeah thank you so much um, we'll yeah. be back soon we'll be back soon on that note <laughs> thank you bye you've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamant and Russell Tovey follow us on Instagram at Talk Art where you can view images of all artworks discussed in this episode subscribe to Talk Art on iTunes and Spotify give us a rating and write us a comment thanks for listening 